Bum, 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 Welcome to the Good Energy Project with Lou Connor, a surprisingly hopeful and upbeat show about economics, climate change, and our future on planet Earth. Kia ora, Lou Connor here. I'm very excited to be interviewing Professor Susan Crumdike today, who was actually the initial inspiration for this whole show and project. She's an American-born engineer who has spent a good chunk of her career in New Zealand at Canterbury University. Right now, she's in the very top of Scotland, where she's working on some very exciting projects that we might hear about soon. If you're new to this show, I'm on a mission to find out how our economic system is impacting our environment and how we could reimagine it to look after our planet and people better. This whole project came about after the chairman of the trust I'm working for in Auckland met Susan. He was so taken by her simple, clear arguments and inspiring vision that he resolved to dedicate his energy to the cause and launched this project. So here we are. Susan is one of the founders of an emerging field called Transition Engineering, which tackles the problem of how we're going to transition from a society completely reliant on fossil fuels to one that meets our needs and can even flourish without them. Transition engineering was designed to help engineers face the challenge of climate change, but it's equally relevant to all of us. What I love about Susan is that she's utterly pragmatic about the reality of climate change, but somehow she manages to maintain an optimism that we really can navigate this challenge successfully. Susan is an expert on energy and has worked with almost every kind of alternative energy source. One of my first epiphanies when I was researching for this project was realising how central energy is to the economy, that absolutely nothing can happen without energy. I was struck by this image of fossil fuels being buried sunlight, that millions of years' worth of sunlight was captured by plants using photosynthesis and buried under the Earth's surface, and how this discovery of this massive store of energy has fueled the creation of our entire modern world. We've been living in an incredible explosion of productivity ever since, but we're now seeing the catastrophic cost of that on our planet. What feels exciting to me about Susan's work is that it acknowledges that we're at this massive transition point in our life on Earth. I love that Susan feels the excitement of that challenge as well as the urgency. She's ambitious and big picture in her thinking, but she gets into the details and makes things happen too. So welcome, Susan. Well, thank you for having me. Kia ora. <laughs> Kia ora. It's really nice to have you here as my second guest um, because, as I said, it was your inspiration that kind of kicked this project off. Great. Um, who was your first guest? Who was my, my first guest was my brother, Justin who I interviewed partly because I was nervous and he was, he's my brother, so I felt comfortable about him. But we also talked about his vision for reimagining the food system. He's involved with, um, with regenerative agriculture and setting up networks and cooperatives, that kind of thing. It was really cool, as well as being my brother. 
Right. Well, there's so many things that we actually know we could do better, right? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's what keeps us going. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm excited to hear more about what keeps you going. My first question is um, starting with the theme of energy. What absorbed your energy when you were a child? What held your attention and fascinated you? Well, I grew up in a tiny village, and I think 800 people qualifies as a tiny village, even in, in New Zealand or Scotland. It's Definitely. pretty small. Yeah. <laughs> but my, my father was a science teacher at the little high school in this little village, which happened to also be quite far away from um, a place with a grocery store or a hospital. Um, and he was the science teacher there and worked during the summer at Mesa Verde National Park, which is a national park dedicated to protecting the remains of the Anasazi culture. So that's oh, yeah. a pre-Columbian um, society that had been around for a really long time and then famously wasn't anymore. Hmm. Oh, wow. So where exactly, yes. <laughs> where, where in America was that? Uh, that's in the area called the Four Corners. So Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, mm -hmm. and Arizona. Mm. All have square a square corner that meets, uh -huh. and so four four states meet in one place. And in that whole area, it's quite deserty, and it and it it was back in the time that um, these native people were making their homes there. Mm. Um, but they learned to live with very little water. They learned to live with a packet of agriculture that worked: corns, beans, and squash, three plants that work well together. Mm. Um, that uh, need rain at different times. Um, and of course, hunting and a kind of sufficiency lifestyle, I guess you would say, but they they did pretty well for a while and then they didn't. Something new happened. They started building things they didn't need, building mm. really big houses for an elite few. And then things became quite unfriendly. And for the last 70 years of thousands years of years existence, mm. they were hiding from each other and trying to protect um, their goods from each other. Right. And um, it, it, it ended in kind of in a bit of an apocalypse. And the survivors moved far away to um, uh, the Rio Grande River area. They built their Pueblo and houses again, farmed corns, beans, and squash. And never again would they strive for wealth. Wow. So they, they live in poverty and walk in beauty. Plant corn live in poverty and walk in beauty. Right. So they're, and they're still there. They, they survived the onslaught of guns and germs. Yeah. <laughs> and, right. um, and did, yeah. So, so, what, what so would growing say up there and knowing this civilization, I was just fascinated. I thought I want to be an archaeologist mm -hmm. or an anthropologist. I, it, it really fascinated me thinking about people living their daily lives and for sure not thinking about us 1,200 mm -hmm. years later, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, and so, you know, here we are looking back at them. Are, are we thinking about people 1,200 years in the future? And I just thought, you know, for all of our amazing technology and science and all that, no, <laughs> we are as future illiterate as any mm. humans have ever been. But mm. we have we have a problem because most people, their future looks like their present because they're recreating it every mm. year in, in cycles and you know, so so for the very long experiment of human civilization, change has been pretty slow. Yeah. 
And now we've had a boom. We've we've changed things like crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but we're still future blind. So that that's our that's our problem of the day. <laughs> Do you remember being inspired by by those people and by something different when you were little? Like, do you remember that feeling? Um, I definitely remember the OPEC oil embargo. Oh, yeah. What happened? <laughs> yes. It, it, yeah. We're getting to be old, the people who actually remember it mm. when I was a kid. But the, the sort of topsy-turvy of that things that never were scarce, right? You just go to the the petrol station or mm. gas station, as they call it in the U.S., you fill up your giant American vehicle and you flutter off. Mm. Um, and then you see on the news the lines, the incivility, the panic, the political collapse, the economic trauma, um, the price spike. And because the amount of fuel that we have is about 7% less than it was. So um, that fascinated me. <laughs> how, how old were you then and what year was it? <laughs> oh, so that was in um, 74. So I would have been uh, maybe ninth grade. Right. So what's ninth grade? Is that? Right. Um, oh, it's about year nine, about the same as yeah. it is in New uh, Zealand. Yeah. 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 So did that? Um, so right. <laughs> did that have quite an impact on you? Well, you know, it had a huge impact on the U.S. Mm. It, it was just cataclysmic, right? Mm. And the U.S. had already, uh, you know, was the world's biggest oil producer, just, um, you know, had done all of the science and the engineering of getting oil above ground, of, of refining it, moving it around in giant volumes, Um the co-engineering of, of the engines with the fuels and mm. those whole systems that, that grew up around that. So much engineering mm. and yet not clever enough to deal with a 7% reduction. It's not, like, what's wrong not with even this? like a huge percentage reduction and it caused chaos. No. Yeah. Considering how wasteful the whole system was, uh, that, that it couldn't cope with that tiny little reduction. Um, you know, I just thought, okay, there's there's something really wrong with this. And then at that same time, the early early seventies, late sixties, the pollution issues were mm. just terrible. Four hundred times more polluting the cars were than they are today. Right. So, yeah, do, do and people just the... threw their rubbish everywhere because we didn't really have waste management systems. Right. Um, so, do yeah. you, do you remember becoming aware of the climate crisis or climate change? Well, by the time I got to high school, so by the early 80s, global warming is what we called it then. Mm. That was very well known. And if you think about how we measure, well, how NOAA, National Atmospheric and Oceanic Administration, measures the CO2, there's an observatory in Mauna Loa, Hawaii, mm -hmm. which is sort of out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, way far away from factories and cities and that. And so they measure the CO2 concentration in a in a column way up into the air and back down every day. Yeah. And that was that was paid for by the United States and finished construction in 1959 because of concerns of global warming right. due to accumulating carbon dioxide. 
So don't ever think of that problem of the issue of CO2 accumulating in the atmosphere and in the oceans as being a new thing. It's not been a new thing since our grandparents were kids. Mm. And do you, do so, you remember when it yeah. kind of entered your consciousness? Oh, yeah. Well, that's why I went into engineering. Okay. Um, yeah. Like I said, I, I just loved the anthropogenics, you know, the 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 human society and the way that it organizes itself. And then there was this energy crisis. And mm. just uh, I remember reading somewhere that fire, the use of fire was millions of years old. Yeah. That archaeologists, you know, they're looking for that hearth that that evidence of fire because that's the evidence of humans um tool making yes but tool making doesn't really come into its heyday till there's fire right we have to have that energy to convert foods to really be able to support the big brain that we've got mm. so, so that that we're almost we all, we almost have a symbiotic relationship with energy it's it's not an optional thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it is how we got the way we are. Plus then the social aspect of a fire, a central hearth, mm-hmm. people would be facing each other and that development that you'd have of language, of education, of caregiving, um, sharing food, a place that's safe. Just we are humans because of fire. Right, yeah. Then, because we're using so much of it and we're so clever at getting something that'll burn, yeah, yeah, we're actually cutting off our future. And so, for me, that was just like, well, this has to be what I have to work on. Mm, mm. Surely, of all the things we've done in our hundred thousand years, surely this is a time. When, like anthropologists say, when we face a new thing, a new challenge, maybe one clever person among us invents a new thing, mm. and then we all have to adjust to what that does to our society, this adaptability that we've got, um, that it is time now for us to evolve to being able to understand the future, to engage with the future, to treat people in the future right. as if they have rights. As we as if we have responsibilities to them, and to correct our behaviors, our wants, needs, and desires, because we are not entitled to destroy their world. So, and this is a sort of thing that every once in a while we we make one of those big shifts where the way that we thought things worked fine, if we got you know if we used other people in a certain way, we then um, uh, evolve yeah. and get to where we don't so much so it feels like the next stage of evolution for humans I was really struck by this image of of tapping into fossil fuels and just this massive amount of energy that we've tapped into but everything's just kind of blasted out and gone in various directions and I really like the idea that we're at this point in evolution where we and next challenge is to sort of lift our sights up to the future and to each other and figure out how to coordinate and how to kind of make something intelligent or make something beautiful out of all the stuff that we've got and the people. And mm. Right. Well, we, we need to mature a bit, that, that sort of idea of evolution, mm. that um, when I look at the economic models that we use, 
and the sort of rationalizations of really not acceptable things. Well, you know, you have to return the profit to shareholders and therefore you have to do this. Um, that to me sounds immature. Mm. That sounds like the argument that, that you know, maybe a, maybe a 13 year old would make. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, <laughs> I yeah. have to have it. So therefore, right. Um, so I, you know, it's the time to mature. It's the time to just um, um, see better things. And now the big question is, okay, how in the world does that happen? Because, you know, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> what do you call it? I'm, I'm, I can see. Yeah. <laughs> it's very clear that yeah. this system has, um, has done what it's done. It has, you know, enriched a few. It's, it's sort of pulled things apart. And my understanding of history is that this happens, right? If you okay. have a, a very powerful and profitable enterprise, um, especially if it's, if it's underpinned by a bit of clever technology, um, then the wealth that can be created, um, it, it will tend to be conscripted uh, uh, by a few. Right. It won't distribute out to everyone. Mm. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm sitting here in Orkney where um, the, you know, four and a half, 5,000 years ago, people were here um, living on the islands, doing mm. their thing, raising cattle. Yeah. Um, and it, it looks like that in the Neolithic before metal, I think that's the, that's a turning point. Like I said, a little bit of technological new something mm. can create a whole new way of looking at the world, a whole new wealth, a whole new um, creation of new structures. And, you know, stone is so available to everybody. <laughs> you yeah. just have to recognize which ones are good for what. Mm -hmm. There's there's no shortage of stone in the Stone Age. And so it's possible they had a much more maternal or balanced way of looking at the world, that there's male and female, yin and yang, spring and fall, you know, that that there's there's just a balance to things. And um, there there's no scarcity mm. because... What everybody needs is there. They wouldn't have used the word resource because we wouldn't use the word resource for air. Mm. It's just a thing that everybody actually can get as much as they need. And I think it's the, you know, the arrival of metal that really starts us off on this um, uh, journey we've been on of um, accumulation of wealth and power. Mm. And it goes in cycles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but now we're in a big cycle where, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I wish we would have got a bit more maturity before we found hydrocarbons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but here we are. Um, right. So, and, or balance. I mean, I say maturity, but, but isn't it also balance? Balance in the way we think of things. There's, again, these, these Neolithic folks, you had to go out and take risks. You had to go try and fish. You, you had to build things that would then last for a while. 
And you also needed to take care of people who didn't have an economic value to the to the society, like children. Mm. You had to think ahead. You had to make the stored food last for the rest of the year. And so I think there's there's always been two parts of our economy. The um the fox, <laughs> the opportunist, go run yeah. around, get stuff, mm-hmm. you know, take lots of chances because one in ten times it'll be good. And then the hedgehog. You mess it up once and you're gone. (laughs) So we got to be careful. We got to be cautious. We got to use what works every time. Right. And those two are what keep us um, not going too far out of whack. Yeah. But if you look at the Industrial Revolution, the whole female economy sort of got um, taken out of the picture. Mm. And the female economy is the caring because caring is important, not because you get paid. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's the um, caution, the moderating, the conservative, the save some for later. Mm. Um, yeah, and and that, how that's not fun. <laughs> let's just yeah, let's just go get them grow. Uh, yeah, so I think we lost our balance, and mm-hmm. that's where one source of positivity for me comes from is that we can recognize that, that we've gotten out of balance Mm. and just start bringing those balancing things back in like regeneration. Mm. That's, that's, you know, that's that other side that balances consumption. You have to have consumption, but you have to have regeneration. You have to have use, but you have to have care and husbandry. Mm. Yeah. So, So just always look for the balance and we will be better. Of right, course, yeah. right now we're in an emergency situation. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about transition engineering and how that came about and what your what your response to this situation is through that? Right. Well, um, it, I was uh, in America, I had my PhD. Um, I could have gone to a lot of places to be a professor, but I couldn't have done a lot of things. I could have done one thing, and that was hydrogen. (laughs) Because in 2000, um, that was the big policy of the day. That was, you know, there was concerns about, mm, it was probably called climate change by then. Maybe it was still global warming. I don't know. But there were concerns. Um, The Kyoto Protocol was in effect. And by 2012, we had to get to um, below 1990 levels of emissions. Mm -hmm. So there was a big push 24 years ago Mm -hmm. um, for green energy. Again, not a new, not a new. Um, And so the big push uh, created a surge around hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, algae biofuels, um, food biofuels, which that turned out to not be a great idea. Um, And so I'd been working in the hydrogen and just sort of as an energy engineer, one day looked up from the fun science that I was doing and realized, wait a minute, this is not a basis for energy. This isn't actually energy. So we have to figure out what we're going to really do. And what, that what do mean? in the U.S., I just couldn't see how anybody was even asking that. <laughs> what do you mean that it wasn't energy? Like what, what, was, what were you seeing about it that wasn't working? Well, um, okay, if you, let's use a gardening analogy, maybe, um, you know that you have to have a, a pea seed to plant in order to grow a pea 
plant that might have what 30 pods of peas on it and each pod of peas has six peas in it so you plant one pea and you get uh 10 pea pods times six you get 60 peas back yeah yep well that's why there's eight billion of us on the planet because agriculture works (laughs) (laughs) right i can plant one seed and i get lots back so that's Mm -hmm. my return on my investment i invest a little bit of food i could have eaten it but i put it (laughs) in the ground yeah and i got 60 times back all right with hydrogen i invest one unit of energy to make the hydrogen Mm -hmm. and i get one third of a unit back oh dear (laughs) that's not that doesn't make that's not great Mm. and if i want to move it anywhere keep shelling out (laughs) Mm. and if i want it back as electricity okay better pay me some more it's you're going backwards really really fast Right. So you can't you you can't run an economy going backwards. And is that sort of um, built in? Steady is fine. I think I think we can do steady. You got to make enough uh, profit to have some seed left. <laughs> you got to uh, feed the animals, feed the people, have some to trade for other things, and have enough seed left. That's the rule for how how energy systems work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so hydrogen, just in a fundamental sense isn't an energy system it's Mm. it's a you're going backwards fast Mm, mm. so you'll you'll just collapse if you if you think that's that you're going to use that for energy um but you can play around with it for 24 years (laughs) and have a good time (laughs) and so what but you haven't gone forward (laughs) that's a problem so um and you haven't started thinking what would you do which is another big problem mm. So, had- so I came to New Zealand to do that thinking, okay? Yeah. I came to New Zealand because I'm I'm an engineer, mechanical engineer, an energy engineer, and I was teaching energy and thermodynamics and heat transfer and how to do projects. And when it comes to energy and climate change and these things, you'd have a lot of discussion and there'd always be a how, yeah, but how do we? How do we do that? How do we change that? How do we, and as an engineer, if somebody's asking, how do we, how do we build a bridge? How do we make a light? How do we build a power plant? We got answers, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Not sort of hairy, fairy political answers, but actual answers. And so why do we keep asking these questions and not have any answers when the problems are change within engineered systems? So there must be an engineering approach. There must be an engineering response and so just just with my brilliant set of um, PhD students and master students and colleagues, we just stayed on that. Okay, how do we? And it turns out that the how do we we have to answer is how do we change what we don't actually want to change? <laughs> that, that so that's like- transition engineering. Why do I say we don't want to change it? Because it works really well and it's profitable. And you know, we can just put our feet up, right? I can go a hundred kilometers an hour and not, not break a sweat. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the definition of works good. Yeah. Um, I've, I've heard you talk about the Titanic analogy before that, um, that it's like we're all in the Titanic and we're heading towards an iceberg and. Yeah. Well, um, 
I luckily, when I was in university, I took all the engineering classes, but I also took sociology and language and and um, culture and culture change and, and all sorts of fun classes like that. And one of the things that that seems really important with human civilizations is the ability to metaphorize, to take a personal, painful, contentious situation and put it on a monkey. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. It's monkeys being silly like that, or (laughs) it's some silly king in a kingdom, or it's a hedgehog and a fox. Right. Um, And that lets us deal with the hard problem without the personal contentious historical arguments would pop out into a metaphor. And the the Titanic metaphor is really, it, it should probably be one of our core stories at the moment because the Titanic is a big technological enterprise. It's technology, isn't it? There's materials in there, there's, there's steel, there's boilers burning coal. So there's engines, there's propellers, there's lights, they had electric lights, they had um, uh, radio you know, they could, they could talk to London. They could talk to New York during Mm. the whole trip. They could talk to other ships, which were telling them there were icebergs out there, by the way. Mm. Um, It was luxurious. It was comfortable. It was fast. So it was the, it was the height of technological enterprise, money-making, giving people a great service, giving them a great time, getting across the Atlantic in four days. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) And yet it was heading straight for an iceberg. So my question was, um, okay, let's go back in time. Let's let's land on the deck of the Titanic in April 11th. We have a day mm. before it hits this iceberg. We we know everything. So we're we've done, we're kind of like the, the climate scientists now. They have modeled everything that they actually need to model. They, they should drop the mic and go home because they've told us everything we need to know. Just like we're on the deck of the Titanic. If we're going to survive, we have everything we need to know. We we have all the history. We know what happened mm. or we know what's going to happen, I guess I should say. Mm. Mm. So what in the world would we do? Um, so we're out of our own time. We're not talking about Trump. <laughs> we're we're not talking about our current affairs like we get all wrapped up in. Um, we're we're now in a situation that is life or death, but we have all the information. But we have a cast of characters whose behavior we can understand, and we can try to get to the bottom of what our options are. So our first option, um, which I call the lads option, because it was some some of my um, undergraduate engineering lads who mm-hmm. who came up with the first option, which is to, uh, you know, where the lifeboats are, so go get one and get off. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's definitely the option that people take. I mean, you know, the people who are coming to New Zealand to wait it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lifeboating, we call it. Mm-hmm. This thing mm-hmm. is going to sink. Let's get off it. Let's save ourselves. Mm. Uh, but those lifeboats each hold 71 people. So if you take that lifeboat, you're killing a lot of other people. Yeah. And you know that there aren't enough lifeboats for the people who are on the ship anyway. Mm. So really, do you think that's responsible to do that? And 
No, okay. Well, all right. What are our other options? Let's leave that one on the table for a while. What are the other options? And the the obvious one is to find the captain and try to convince the captain, right? That that's your well, if Jacinda Ardern just understood the risks of climate change, then Then what, right? (laughs) So we've got a captain who has lots of experience. He's very good. He's, you know, sailed lots of of ships. Um, But he is good. He's not going to listen to us. He's going to just keep going. He he has a job. He has a mission. And the the president of the the White Star Line, the company is on the ship. And they're going to make it to New York and make their docking time and not inconvenience anyone. And so, yeah, there's a lot of reasons why we aren't going to be able to find the captain and convince him to slow down the ship. Mm. Um, I guess we could talk about that. What would save the Titanic? Well, not hitting the iceberg would kind of do it. (laughs) So get real clarity on what it is you're trying to do. Don't hit the iceberg. It's not any more complicated than that. How would you not hit the iceberg? Well, you know, they're going full steam and that's why they couldn't avoid it. So slow down and turn, go a different way. Don't, don't go there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, go um, south. And does that kind of relate to um, transition engineering? I've heard about. Well, it does getting... because of all these options. So we look at the um, the captain, we look at the navigators. So they're. Um, they're sort of like the economists, right? Mm-hmm. We're we're gonna go straight on this line. That's where we're gonna go. It's on a it's a drawn on the paper, you know, not really, but that's where we're going. Not my job, anything else. We go there. Um, we could talk to the the operators who were taking the warnings from other ships that there were huge ice flows right in their way. And like our climate scientists, you know, find a different way to communicate or something. You're just you're just yelling the same thing over and over. You're passing 14 messages up to the bridge about these icebergs. Apparently that wasn't the, you know, the first one should have been enough. <laughs> so yeah. let's not do a COP28. Let's get at, you know, let's let's move on from whatever this is because it's getting too late. What about the first class passengers? Couldn't we find the celebrities that were on board, the moguls that were on board, the um, you know, the owner of the asset is on board? Can't we mm. find them and convince them to slow down the ship? Because all they would have to do is tell the captain and he would do it. But we can't get into the first class lounge. We're not allowed to talk to those people. And they are pretty sure that their first class passage means they're going to be okay, that they're safe. They'll be taken care of. And there's no risk because this amazing ship is unsinkable. So should we go down to the the third class passengers and try to get them to come up and protest? What? Mm. I mean, they're going to die in much higher numbers than, than the first class passengers. Maybe we could get the young people, the children, to come up to the bridge and occupy the bridge and demand that the, the captain slow down. Well... Um, how many of those people are actually going to do that? We don't have time. And they've all gone to sleep because <laughs> it's getting late. You know, at, at what, 1134 is when the ship, mm. when they, they saw the, the iceberg and they had about a minute and a half before they hit it. So the point of the story, how we get to transition engineering is that this is an engineered system. It is going to fail because it's going to be driven beyond its breaking point. 
And the reason it's going to fail is because it's working exactly the way it was supposed to. <laughs> it's growing instead it, of it's going full steam. Mm. And there are people shoveling the coal into the boilers, which are driving the the steam engines, which work perfectly well. And there's only 52 of them. So if we go all the way down to the bottom of the ship and we could talk to those 52 people, if we could even convince 20% of them to slow down, to stop shoveling, that would depower the system enough that they would probably have time to avoid the iceberg. Think about that. Um, you know, 3,000 people on this ship, 1,500 of them are going to die. Mm. and 15 people could save them so by the, changing their perspective, changing what they're doing and not hurting anybody. <laughs> so are they the oil So companies? that's why I think transition engineering is, is from within the bowels of this machine, mm. knowing how it works is so important. If you don't understand the thermodynamics and what the energy is doing, and if you don't understand how to power down safely, um, and if you if you convince yourself that the inconvenience that these first class passengers might experience if their arrival is four hours late and they don't make their berth and they have to wait for their porters to come take their luggage, that that just doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Well, how do so you that's transition engineering? <laughs> we we take a new perspective on what the problem is, what the costs and inconveniences really mean and what the solutions would be and we metaphorized it we talked about the titanic but that is exactly the mindset which now we teach each other we support each other um you know you don't want to be like the one guy who decides you know these people might have it right this thing can't be unsinkable and they said that the you know the the operators, the the um, wireless operators actually know there's icebergs. So I'm going to slow down. Okay. One of them doesn't count. We got to get, we got to get 20% of them to do it. Mm. Um, so and there's still a risk. Uh, so we have to support each other. We have to, we have to learn this new perspective and we have to be able to action it. So are those people shoveling stuff into the engines? Are you seeing those as the engineers or are they the oil companies? <laughs> Well, it would be the oil engineers. The oil companies can't get oil above ground without the engineers. Right. So you're sort of seeing a big coup from the engineers over the world. Or, yeah, what what gives you real optimism? What does that look like when the engineers have a coup? <laughs> I don't know. Well, I'll tell you what. Most people don't know what engineers do anyway. So <laughs> how would you know if we were having a coup or not? <laughs> Maybe the ship would start slowing down. <laughs> It would, and you might not even notice. <laughs> mm. So, yeah, what gives right. you what um, gives you up? What enables you to still be optimistic? Um, the biggest reason is because engineering has done this before, dozens of times. Mm -hmm. When the legal, compliant, profitable systems that engineers bring into the world and operate for profit. <laughs> When this great technology also has a downside that's not humanly acceptable, then engineers have always in the past 
gotten together. They didn't go to any politicians. <laughs> In fact, it looks like they don't really like, you know, they just get on with their business. Um, they form a corrective transdiscipline. That's that's what we call it, a corrective mm-hmm. transdiscipline. We're, we're doing a thing that's profitable, it's legal, it's compliant, it's according to standards, politicians love it, it's creating growth, and yet it's not acceptable the way it's working. So mm-hmm. the very first one was factories and, and um and boilers, the boilers themselves, they they would blow up a lot. And when they did, it was spectacular. You'd lose a, a whole factory would go up oh when gosh. a boiler would blow. Mm. And so there was a pause that was put on. And it was in the United States, this pause. We aren't going to build any more boilers until we figure out how to make them so they won't blow up. That requires science. So they got research. Um, came up with the theory of what it is that makes a vessel strong when it's under pressure and therefore how to design that vessel, what thickness, um, how tall, how round, so that it won't blow up and and how to measure the pressure and how to regulate that pressure. Okay, now there's the standard for boilers. You can be a certified boiler maker, design it according to the standard, and guess what? The blowing up stopped, mostly. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Right. So that's the pattern that we always have that that we we have, you know, perfectly good stuff, but it has an unacceptable inhuman toll. Mm. That's why I talked about at the beginning that being able to recognize humans of the future as some of the same people who would get blown up by a boiler that, you know, they're they're actual human beings who will pay the cost for this. Therefore, we will look at what we're doing and we'll change it so that we we have zero loss of life. Yeah. That's yeah. that's so, the rule. Yeah. And so because I'm focusing on economics in my work at the moment, do you think it's possible to make the changes you're seeing unnecessary within our economic system and Yes, because these corrective transdisciplines always returned economic benefit. Mm-hmm. They're not, uh, they, they don't blow up the economy. They just change. So if we go back to our Titanic model, where mm-hmm. the Titanic itself is this technical technological enterprise, um, there's so much engineering in there, <laughs> every inch of it. And yet it's got a fatal flaw and the economy that's driving that doesn't even know that it doesn't know about it and it doesn't really seem to care, (laughs) but saving it, changing the economy so that the disaster doesn't happen. It's entirely possible that the people above decks just wouldn't even be aware of any of this going on, you know? So the, the technology and the operation, all of the stuff that engineers do, and there aren't really that many engineers out of all workers. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not the biggest number. And when I say engineer, I don't just mean people technically trained as engineers. There's the management of the projects they do. There's the procurement of the projects they do. There's the oversight. There's also these layers of these corrective disciplines, the safety, the compliance, inspection you know it's a whole system of getting something done and making it work mm. and the the people who might be yammering on about the economy and economics 
don't even seem to notice that they're actually on a ship. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this analogy of like the economy being a bit like a pool table, but it's kind of sloped so that's easy to keep producing stuff, but it's harder to push the balls. You have to push the balls uphill to sort of look after the environment. And yeah. The you- economy. Um, okay. I'm going to say stuff about the economy now. Okay. <laughs> go, go ahead. Because I've studied anthropology. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that the thing we call the economy, the market, mm-hmm. it's a human construct. It's a it's a belief-based system. It's not a science-based system. It's not a fact-based system. Uh-huh. You know, people have always had this, this system by which they try to gauge um, their chances of success, right? So if you make the sacrifices to Odin, you take your best sword and you break it and sacrifice it to Odin, then you'll have success in the future, right? right? Mm-hmm. So seriously, could we could we do experiments and see if that's actually true? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, think about that. There are no experiments on this thing we call the economy. We just believe it. And don't be surprised that you get talked into believing stuff because we always have. The world is too complex. We just, we need belief systems so that mm-hmm. we can all say the same thing and go, oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's the fact so that everyone let's not believes cling it. to what we call the economy as if it's a thing. Let's understand how it looks when religions change, when superstitions change, when biases change, because that's what this is going to look like. We're just going to get a new view of how we want things to be, and we're going to start talking about that. Mm. So what what aspects? No, I get it. I like what you're saying. Um, what aspects of that sort of belief system or that thing that we agree is the economy, what aspects do we need to change to that? Oh, well, here's the thing. Hmm. I don't think we can change them. Oh, dear. <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> Go on. Why I say that is, again, if the, the economy being a human construct, it's mm-hmm. a belief system. What I can tell from history is that those belief systems don't change, they fade. They're replaced by a better one. So don't waste any time on the old one, on trying to figure out what's wrong with it. It's just wrong. Sometimes we're just wrong. (laughs) Throwing virgins into the volcano doesn't actually guarantee a good harvest. (laughs) Okay. So what does Sometimes we're just wrong. (laughs) What does that look like in practice? What does it look like? To- okay, what it looks like in practice is that you you give good thinking time um, to scientific principles, use data as much as possible, and construct the way you think the world works based on that. Mm-hmm. So regenerative, for example. You cannot teach neoliberal economics the value of regenerative industry because they don't get it, Right. It's not, it's not in their gospel. <laughs> mm, mm. So just build the value of regenerative industry. Mm. Mm? And what you'll see is a gradual change. You know, neoliberal economics isn't that old either. It replaced something else. The new thing just does things better. The new model just fits better with what we believe and what our values are. And therefore, the other one will just get weaker and and fade. Mm. 
So that's where I put my energy is on, mm. okay, well, what does a good economics look like? And the, the good economics has to be riding a safe ship <laughs> that's mm. being operated properly. Mm. So good engineering is going to breed good economics. And good engineering has to be based on science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so there we go. <laughs> Back to science. Yeah. And um, can you give, like, what do you up to in Scotland? How is this um, manifesting in the world? What does it look like? Yeah, what, is, what does it <laughs> All look right. like? Yeah. Well, yesterday we had a bit of an innovation oh. um, around a way to build a kind of simple model, a mock-up model. Okay, if you've ever seen what architects do when they're uh, expressing their idea for a building, they'll build a mock-up model of it, right? It's made out of um, balsa wood, or maybe nowadays it'll be 3D printed, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? So it's not the building, but it behaves like the building, and you can experience it like the building, and you can you know, get your head around it. Yes. So we're using these mock-up models of the way that a system would work and the way that the economy would work within that system. Ah. So we're trying to solve the problem of affordable quality housing. Anybody else have that problem? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's a slight problem. But think about it. Why is it a problem? It's a problem because of the market. That's why. So we have to understand how many houses there are, how many people need a house in a particular place and the quality of those houses. And we have to see if we actually have sufficient housing. And if we do, then we need a new way to find ways into that housing. And we definitely need to find a way to break the system that we now believe we have to have, which is that you have to pay a bank an exorbitant amount of money in order to have a place to live. Mm. So what we're doing is we're building that mock-up model so that the people of this community can understand how many houses there are, how many people, what they're looking for, where people are, where the, you know, uh, if there's a shortage of proper houses for people who need them. And then they can write the rules for how the um, how people are going to find a house and what it should cost to live in that house. And those rules are man-made constructs and we can rewrite them. Mm-hmm. We can basically write local constitutions for housing. We don't have to be slaves to the current system that we've got, which is so predatory and so extractive that it is choking the life out of our communities. Yeah. So what, where's the model? Can I, can um, we, like, is it an Auckland? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the model we're, is uh, in a computer. Okay. Oh, I see. Yep. yep. At the moment. Yeah. Because <laughs> with computers, you can, you know, you can look at a map. Because yeah, our, our yeah. places where we live look like a map, you know, yeah. you can yeah. you can understand yeah. them in that in that sense. And then we build what's called an agent-based simulation. So we know the houses, we know the housing stock because it's geospatially located. Ask Google, right? Ask Google Map. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then we know the population and we know the demographics. So we create agents who are try to find a place in this town. 
Mm-hmm. They try to populate the town. Mm-hmm. And if the only requirement for that is that they find the right place, we're going to watch and see if without the market interference, if people can just all find a place. Now, if they can't, then we'll know what the shortages, we'll know what the shortfalls are. We know, we'll mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. what will need to be built. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we found so far is that really there are enough houses that this feeling that there aren't enough houses is actually created by the market itself. Uh, And that's why the prices are going through the roof. mm. And why people are displaced while they're, why they're not within walking or cycling distance of their work and schools. Mm, mm. Um, Because there's plenty of houses there. There's an artificial shortage created by the way that we have access to houses. Mm. You sort of so we're, we're going to try and design a new real yeah. estate system. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> Why not? What so else are you going to do tomorrow? Re-engineering something to replace the market. Well, the way the market works, right. Mm. I mean, there would there would still be a market, but it will play by the rules set by the people who live there. Mm. 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 Sounds fun <laughs> and cool. <laughs> Well, we've been working on this this rule building, given data information and your own internal sensibilities about what's human. Mm. And we we started with school children. We did a project in a in a local school, and they were very good at it. <laughs> and they've <laughs> yeah. now got the rules to get their school to net zero. Um, as far as people driving to the school, we'll get below that critical mass where. Mm-hmm. You know, only the people who actually need to be driven to school will drive to school. People who are handicapped, for example. Uh huh. So um, the, the kids came up with the rules and now they're following them. <laughs> right. We came up with the program by which they built their rules mm-hmm. that had the data and the information and the understanding and the learning. Mm. And that then allowed them to create rules which were salient for the situation mm. and which everyone agreed were fair. Mm. So that then their parents had to abide by. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, we don't have a lot of time left and I've got two more questions. So I wondered. Mm. <laughs> um, so my first, no, my second to last question is, do you have a big vision? If you could imagine anything in the world, what would you do or what would you be part of? Right. Well, right now, that 20% of all engineers having that ability to manage their perspective and look at the world this other way around and ask, okay, how do I change what needs changing? How do I downshift the amount of fossil fuel we're using to what the climate scientists say is a safe level? Mm. That for me is the ultimate vision because I know once we get to 20%, then we'll have a cascade. That's what's happened in the past. And it will become normal. And then the future will be a totally different future than it was before. Mm, mm. So that's my my huge vision. And it's still doable. And I've done everything that I can to make it happen. I've laid the groundwork with other transition engineers so that we have the the starting platform to launch from. So, yeah, that's my vision. Yeah. And um, what are you up against? What makes it hard? Well, you know what's really weird? These previous corrective disciplines that have happened have happened before the internet. Right. 
It's almost like the internet, which should allow us to reach people faster. We should be able to do this transition about a hundred times faster than the safety engineering transition or the maritime safety transition or the boiler transition or the oil safety transition, right? We should be able to do these things much faster. And yet it seems like maybe there's something about social media, internet, that is just creating so much noise. It's like a fog. It's hard to even get your bearings. So I think the the, <laughs> the biggest problem is, again, this thing that should work really well is actually got something wrong with it. Right, yeah. So it's a sort of challenge to getting through to people. Yep, which, again, is odd because... <laughs> Yeah. We should be able to do that. The technology's there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So um one final question. Imagining that you're eighty-five and you're sitting in a comfortable armchair and just sort of looking back over your life, what do you feel most proud of? Ooh, eighty-five. Um my grandkids will be early career. And we will have been successful in this transition engineering. There will have been amazing regeneration activities. Reimagining has happened. And I used to imagine it, and I have a pretty good imagination. And now you all have seen it, what our cities look like when they're not infested with automobiles. Mm-hmm. Um you know, going out for a walk, doing creative things. So uh, when I'm 85 and I'm saying, man, that was touch and go, but but we did it. And we now have this, this real true ability to look into the future honestly and to consider those people as part of our families and, and part of our responsibility. We've managed to to come out from under that mania that we had. Mm, mm, <laughs> yeah. Mm, sounds good. Well, um, that's about our time. Um, and thank you so much for joining me and for the inspiring and interesting places we've gone. <laughs> and, that's right. We've gone to the Anasazi culture in the yeah. Southwest. We went on to the Titanic. We played with a fox and a hedgehog. <laughs> and then we talked about the re oh the religion of our economy and yeah, now the yeah. retirement of mm. our fossil fuel overuse age. Mm. And is there anything else you'd like to say? Like if people would like to learn more about transition engineering? Oh yes, we're easy to find if you put transition engineering into any search engine. You can join as a supporter in the same sort of way maybe you would join Greenpeace because what Greenpeace is doing, you want them to be doing Mm, or mm. uh, Doctors Without Borders or anything like that. Please share transition engineering with any engineers, you know. And if you are an engineer, this is like safety training. You wouldn't want to not have safety training and participate in the practice, the discipline of safety. So this is our planetary safety, our future safety. So get on board and let's get up to that 20% tipping point within the year. That's our that's our goal. Join in. Join in. Yeah, cool. Join in. Okay. Thank you so much. Sure. Thanks for having me. Boom, boom, boom.
The show is also available as a podcast at thegoodenergyproject.substack.com. Boom, 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 boom.